morning. I'm wondering if I should tell you that I have a sty in my eye. <laughs> but I think if you're close enough, you can see that mostly I'm only looking out of one eye, my left eye. My right eye and I are discussing the situation. <laughs> so far, um, my eye is having the upper hand, so to speak. And also, yesterday, I fell yesterday while jogging. I'm learning how to jog. Fell while jogging, and um, it was really interesting. I felt like an old person for the first time in my life. I almost never feel old. I'm 68 going on 69. <laughs> and I never feel incapacitated, really. I mean, I have some strength and so on and so forth, although that's going, and uh, I used to have really a lot of stamina, and since my bicycle accident last year, I haven't been able to exercise in distance, so I don't have as, I don't have as much stamina. But, but yesterday I felt rickety, and um, Old. I felt achy. Well, maybe that's a, who says that's a definition of old. I just saw a picture of a, at least she was 80 years old, a picture of a woman who does yoga at 80, and she was doing the thing where you, um, you know, you put your hands down and then you're, you, you get your legs up on the back of your, I mean, she was really strong. So what am I talking about? I could go off on a thing about, you know, our whole entire, the whole entire path in some ways, nothing, not completely, actually I take it back, but <laughs> a lot of the path is about um, having a thought, seeing the thought, and then not reifying that thought, you know, not giving thoughts the truth, you know, the, the truth. and. Um, <coughs> So I was just making a truth out of the word old. Who knows what that means, you know? I think it does mean closer to death. Last week we had um, a lovely, our first actually away retreat, where some people went to uh, Pennsylvania and we had a little, lovely little retreat. I thought it was a really nice um, schedule and it was very intimate. My eye leaks. So. <laughs> Had a try. I hope we do it again in uh, 
spring. Right, last uh, we began that um, retreat, the evening we, we had a small teeny talk and then we, we uh, shared things. And the first thing we talked about was vow. And then we went around and we each said a personal vow and a general vow. And it became, it, was a, it, it kind of set the tone for the retreat and then it became quite, or it started anyway, a tone of intimacy. Oh, it was really lovely. So today, last week I talked about, or two weeks ago, I talked about um, repentance and forgiveness. And so this week I want to talk about vow. And I'm just following a book, Living by Vow, which I think you've all, uh, it's been announced somewhere that that's the book that we're going to be looking at during this time. So. It's a terrific book, and it gives us a real sense, a real taste of why we do the chants that we do here. And he begins the book by talking about vow, because we chant vows. In our lineage, we chant a lot of vows. I think one of the main things to think about, about vow, is that... uh, You know, we have a choice in life. We have many choices. One is to, you know, choose not to do unnecessary suffering. It's a choice. Another choice is we can either unconsciously, or sometimes consciously, but mostly unconsciously, live out our karmic conditioning. Or we can live a life of intentionality. We can live a life of vow. It's a choice that we can make. And many, many vows are offered to us. And most of the vows that people do are uh, not conscious. But everybody makes vows. Whether we know it or not, we're making vows all the time. And our culture you know, offers certain vows, encourages certain vows. And it's where we put effort and energy and where we put effort and energy is what we value. So many people make vows in our culture about money, making money. I vow to make a lot of money. I vow to make money and then give three quarters of it away. I vow to look as pretty as I possibly can. I vow to be a good teacher, as good a teacher as I possibly can with, with young kids. I vow to have a relationship. I vow to have, have kids. I want a baby. I vow to have a baby. I'm going to do what it takes to have a baby. <laughs> do you ever talk about the, do you ever ask the baby if that's what they want? No, nobody does that. Um, when I at the at the little retreat that we did, I offered um, first a personal vow and then 
a general vow. And my personal vow is, is that, um, is a vow to my brother that, he doesn't know this actually, but I vow that I, I, if I possibly can, if I'm anywhere around and not dead myself, I vow that I will not have him die alone. It's a really important vow for me that I made to him. And then, of course, you know, other vows that I've taken are, many vows I've taken are everything to do with our community. You know, I've taken bodhisattva vows, I've taken the precept vows, and so on. And those are general vows involving myself, but also other people. So the first, the first kind of vow that we take as a Buddhist are the ten specific precepts. And I think a number of you have studied those precepts in our precept class, and some of you have taken those as vows, others want to. They are basic. Without those vows, we believe as Buddhists, there is no stability of mind. So you can't have real stability of mind if you lie, for example. Because you, know, you have to remember what the lie was, who you made the lie to, who <coughs> the lie was about or not, and who you want to keep telling that lie to or not tell that lie to. It becomes very, very um, complex often when you lie. And so on with the other vows as well not slandering, not misusing sexuality, not praising self and putting others down, not being possessive of anything, not intoxicating the mind clearly, not misusing sexuality, and so on. These are all basic, fundamental ways of being in the world that if you make those vows and more than not are able to live those vows, then you have a real good chance of the mind being quiet, stable and quiet, without extra chattering mind. Because, you know, it's the chattering mind that really is our suffering. That's all it is. (laughs) Do any of you remember the books, you know, a long time ago, the Castaneda books? Carlos Castaneda books? Some? few? Basically, that's what he said. That's what his whole emphasis was. He wanted, um, what was the guy's name? Don Juan? Don Juan? Right? Yeah, Don Juan. Castaneda wanted Don Juan just simply to stop the inner dialogue, remember? Just stop the inner dialogue. Not by suppressing it, just by making his experiences so uh, wide, in a way, um, that it was just not that, you know, his chattering mind just didn't come close to uh, commenting on, rea- on what, you know, this reality, this new reality that is being exposed to. So his whole, his whole effort 
Castaneda with Don Juan was to simply stop the inner dialogue. You can't stop the inner dialogue if you don't have a clear ethical foundation of your life. So that's how we begin. We begin with ethics, the ten specific grave precepts we vow. And then part of that same ceremony, we vow the three pure precepts. Basically, do good, don't do evil, and live to benefit all beings. And along with that, are the three refuges. I take refuge in awakened mind. I take refuge in the teaching. And I take refuge in the community of practitioners that are living intentionally in this way. And then, as we continue on this path, we're offered another set of vows that are called the bodhisattva vows. I'm sure you've heard them. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Desires are endless. I vow to end them. Desires are boundless. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter each one. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. These are bodhisattva vows. Bodhisattva is a person who wants to awaken out of karmic conditioning, out of the structure of the ego, out of greed, hate, and delusion, so that they can be there for other people and awaken with everyone. So a bodhisattva is a person who makes the first hug. When you meet someone, bodhisattva doesn't hesitate. Doesn't think, is that person going to hug me first? Am I going to be accepted by that person? Does that person want a hug? Am I afraid to hug somebody? No. Bodhisattva sees another person, hasn't seen for a while, and wham! (laughs) Makes the first gesture of openness. A bodhisattva lives by vow, has a clear understanding of the, in a sense, the meaning of their life, because they have a direction, because vows act like a rudder. They steer our life. They help us in the rough currents. 
They give us clarity. There are three main bodhisattvas that we think about. There are lots and lots of bodhisattvas, but there's some main ones. And one of them is Manjushri, the guy with the sword on the altar. Sword, so right, he's the bodhisattva of wisdom. And the sword is there to cut through delusion, cut through ego, egoic mind. But it's held really lightly with only like two fingers, three fingers. He's got his pinky up in the air. It's very feminine. Kind of like he's holding a teacup. So it's a gentle but firm approach (laughs) to our death. The death of the psychological person we think we are, you know. (laughs) And the other one is Samantabhadra. It's a bodhisattva of awakened activity and often the images on a, an elephant. I don't know if you know much about elephants or if you like even elephants. I don't know. An elephant, an elephant is just an amazing, I was going to say human being, <laughs> but that we were like elephants <laughs> instead of chimpanzees. If you've ever seen a baby elephant in the wild, even a picture on YouTube, you should look up joy baby elephant. They're the embodiment of joy. And there's a place in Africa, I think it's, I think it's almost the only place, I forgot where it was, it's on the, I think the East Coast maybe, where the ocean comes right next to the jungle. And so elephants are in that jungle and elephants can come and play in the waves. Have you ever seen that? Oh my God, they're hilarious. They play, you know, elephants play. Anyway, so Mantabhadra, who is often uh, female, a lot of these are kind of androgynous figures, is on an elephant, riding on an elephant. And the other one, of course, is Avalokiteshvara, who I think Kuan Yin is one of the manifestations of Avalokiteshvara, who is the bodhisattva of compassion. So these bodhisattvas have made not, not vows like we usually make, like, I want to learn to play the guitar. It's a vow, you know. Bodhisattva makes gigantic vows. <laughs> really big, impossible vows. Like, I want to awaken with all beings. I want all beings to awaken, every single one of them. And I'm going to stay here until that happens. I'm going to, excuse me for putting it this way, but (laughs) I'm going to live in the mud of delusion with everybody until everybody awakens up. This is about of a bodhisattva. It's like Gandhi. I am going to offer my life until a billion or two billion or however many there were when he was walking in India are free. You know? Or Tecumseh in the United States. 
I will give my life so that the culture and heritage of the original Americans can endure. And he did. There are many, many people whose heart includes everyone. That's a bodhisattva. And one of the main texts that we study as a bodhisattva was written by a bodhisattva by the name of Shantideva in the 8th century. It's called the Bodhicharya Vitara. It's called the Way of the Bodhisattva. And in it, it's basically a, you know, uh, teaches and talks about from beginning to end, the practices that one does as a bodhisattva. The practices we do after the precepts are really established and stable, and you, you begin doing your practice for other people. And we begin practicing the paramitas, the six paramitas, which are joyful effort, generosity, patience, wisdom, meditation, and ethics. And they're all a part of each other, you know. But it was with reason that the Buddha, I don't know if it was the Buddha, that that generosity is the first one. Some people emphasize some of them rather than others, but they're all equally important. And some of them are undervalued. Like patience, I think, is one that we kind of skip over. But it really is important. For ourself, you know. We make one mistake after the other. If we don't practice patience, (laughs) we're going to beat ourselves up. The book that he wrote, Bodhicharya Bhattara, um, starts with, of course, no surprise here, he starts with vows. So the, the first vows that he talks about, you'll hear the pure precepts. And then he talks about um, emptiness, which is a little verse that comes directly out of the Diamond Sutra in the end, you know, in, in San Francisco. Every week, I think, as part of the weekly rotation of scripture that we read, chants that we do, we do the Diamond Sutra in this wonderful way because it's a long, it's a sutra, and everybody starts in a different place. So all you hear is a bunch of mumbling, you know, because somebody is saying the blah, 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 and then somebody else is saying Manjushri, da, 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 da. So it's a big blah, 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 blah. You can't hear anybody. And you can start, and the reason why is because you can start anywhere you want to. You just open the book. Now, of course, <laughs> it's really interesting because it, it gives you information a little bit about yourself. Some people only start at the beginning. Right? Some people have favorite parts, and they just go there. <laughs> Some people just open the book. Yeah. 
I had a favorite part, <laughs> which was this. And it's in, it's in the back. The thing is, I couldn't always start there because it's right at the end. So if you start there, you're, you know, you're over right away. So <laughs> I had to start. So here it is. Here, so here's what Samantha, uh, what Shantideva starts with. Abandon evil doing, practice virtue well, subdue your mind. This is the Buddha's teaching. Like a star, an optical illusion, or a flame, a magical show, a dewdrop, or a bubble, like a dream, a flash of lightning, or a cloud, so should one consider all compounded things. So you have compassion in the first part, and you have wisdom, emptiness in the second, the second part. And as I say all the time, in our, in our path you need both, because people get stuck. You know, sometimes if you have a taste of emptiness, and then you fly away into emptiness, and you think that, you know, people are unimportant, and Nothing really matters. You fall into this nothing matters thing. It's a sickness. And it's very difficult sometimes to get these people who fall into emptiness to come back, to be grounded again in form. It's a mistake they make. Too infatuated. Emptiness. And yet, though, compassion all by itself without emptiness, without understanding, dependent co-rising, really, becomes what we call this kind of stupid compassion. Very codependent compassion. So we, we need both. And then I want to read you the um, favorite vow of the Dalai Lama, which I think I've read you before. And it's for also from Shantideva. Listen to this. This is, this is his vow. As long as space endures, as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too remain and dispel the miseries of the world. So bodhisattvas make big vows, vows that include everyone. So how do we relate to this? They're impossible. Don't kill. Ridiculous. No. Save all sentient beings. How are we going to do that? It's not possible. Especially since, you know, as we're being asked to open our hearts, you know, we've been hurt. We've opened our hearts. I mean, kids open their hearts all the time. And the world just smack, smack, smack. 
you know. And even as adults, we try again, you know, and boom, right in the heart. So we don't want to risk vulnerability. You know, some, of, some part of ourselves doesn't want to open our heart. We've done it before. Sorry, been there, done that. Doesn't work. Don't want to. And so what we do is we keep the practice in our heads. Sometimes we even take these vows, but they're intellectual. We read about them. Yeah, they're good, really good. Not for me, though. <laughs> I'm not worthy. I couldn't possibly be a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a good person. I'm not so good. I can't make those vows. I can't even relate to them. So it's all about, it's all about an attitude, a kind of spirit of Zen, or a spirit of Buddha, a spirit of a bodhisattva, the attitude of a bodhisattva. So first is, it's really important to vow, because we need a rudder. We need something to orient our life. So it's important to vow. It's important to know that we don't want to live a karmic, conditioned. That's why you're all here. You've already made that choice. So once that's clear, then the question is, well, how do you take these vows? It says that these vows are endless. And they they seem endless, don't they? I vow to awaken with all beings, not just human beings, all the animals, all the fish, all the insects, all the trees, with everybody, all beings, to wake up out of suffering, out of delusion, out of a sense of separation. (coughs) So it's really important to know. It's really important to pay attention to the moment you actually say the vow. Because we don't know the future. You know, the world might end by, by asteroid tomorrow. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. But what we can do is pay attention when we make such a vow. Because at that moment, your heart is open. At that moment, you really mean it. That moment, a Buddha mind is there. At that moment, I'm not going to kill. At that moment, 
I am going to save all sentient beings. And you mean it, that moment. And that's all it takes. We don't have to think about forever. We only have to think about right now. Can I risk just a little bit even? Just open the heart. Let the tenderness be there. Let's be just a little bit vulnerable and risk. It's okay, really, even if we get hurt. It's more important to risk. So that's what it means to live by vow. And that's our path. We take vows to be bodhisattva, to be what we actually already are. We already have this aspiration to be open-hearted, to care about other people. You give human beings half a chance, and that's what they do. So vowing is an important part of our path, very important part. And we do it on each moment. We do everything on each moment. (laughs) You know, it's not easy. Many of us have been hurt, you know. And um, it's not like, like, you know, just in the same way that we we vow on this moment, not forever, you know. In that very same way, it's not like we have to open our heart, you know, like rip it open, and it's supposed to stay open forever. It's not like that. It's more of a gentle, encouraging, you know, understanding that we're scared or we're too tender or or we've been shut down for so long, we don't even know what it feels like to have our hearts be exposed. So it's a very patient, you know, we're patient. We want to be really kind, but we do want to vow so we know at least the direction that we're going. And we can feel at each moment, whenever it comes up, Oh, yeah, that's right. I want to live to benefit all being. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.